Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homie. I am your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. We are going to have an incredible conversation here on the Business Creators Radio Show about e-commerce. Specifically, we're going to have an awesome conversation about how to grow, scale, and sustain your e-commerce business. What we're finding is, particularly with all the shifts that we've had happen over the past year, e-commerce has become more alive than ever, and also there's a lot more competition than there used to be. Plus, I think most of us are uh, grown-ups and we're beyond the idea that all you have to do is put up a link to an e-store and people are going to come flooding to it. So you need to have a sustainable and scalable plan that's going to enable you to effectively grow your e-commerce business. To guide us through this today, we have Nathan Otwell. He is the Chief Marketing Officer of Shopanova, which is a modern growth media buying agency for e-commerce shops. His phenomenal team has been able to grow their clients' revenues from five figures to seven figures and beyond. So you can discover more about how to build what's known as a generational brand and scale your business to millions at shopanova.com. Nathan Otwell, come on in. The weather's fine. Hey, man. It's good, good to be here. Good to be talking to everybody. And I'm excited to get this thing going. All right. So before we dive in, I know you have a few questions you want us to share with our audience with some great insights. What we like to do is take a quick step back and discover more about who our guest is. So what I'm going to ask you to do is tell me a bit about your journey, what's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Yeah, man. So I actually got started in the world of Walmart. Um, so I actually live in Bentonville, Arkansas in the United States, which is the headquarters and birthplace of Walmart. Yep. And, um, essentially growing up here, whenever you, you know, go to school, go to college, whatever the case may be, like you're always pulled back into this area to do something with Walmart usually, because that's just what everybody does here. Um, it's, it's pretty much like if your hometown was an Amazon headquarters, you know what I mean? Like it's so, so many jobs here are geared towards the Walmart lifestyle, whether it's suppliers, whether it's Walmart headquarters, Sam's club, whatever the case may be. And this is the industry that I actually got my start in. I was a junior on the Energizer personal care. Um, just like the batteries, Energizer batteries. They also have a brand group that's for personal care. Uh-huh. And, um, my start was with them and all of the marketing that went into the Walmart shopper, getting somebody to the store, getting the products in their cart, getting the cart to the checkout lane and getting that item into your household. 
And so basically I went from doing that to this big modern world that is uh, social, Facebook, Instagram, paid advertising. And what I found was a lot of the stuff that I was doing on the Walmart marketing side of things that was digital can be done by pretty much any brand on social. And it's actually way cheaper than what we used to do it for. So, I mean, we used to pay, you know, 150 to 150,000 all the way all the way up to $5 million for a campaign. And sometimes wow. get, yeah, sometimes you get up into the Super Bowl stuff and you know, with Super Bowl, you're paying anywhere from $2.5 million for 30 seconds of ad space to $15 million for, you know, a 60 second ad space or something like that. So basically like coming from this traditional world where everybody was just buying impressions constantly, they just wanted eyeballs. What I found is I could take the exact concepts, apply it to Facebook, Instagram, and now other uh, platforms such as TikTok, Snapchat, Pinterest, and we can essentially create the same type of customer journey for pennies on the dollar. That's great. Now, what I want to break out here first off before we get into some of your questions is you mentioned cost per impression. Uh, there are so many metrics when it comes to paid advertising. And my understanding of cost per impression is just simply eyeballs. So how many people see the ad? So how many times it shows up? How many times it's visible in somebody's news, news feed on a social media feed? So with that being said, I've also been told that that's... And again, I'm, I'm asking you to clarify this for us. I've been told by some that that's almost a wasteful metric because that's like putting a bulletin board um, in the middle of the uh, I-15 near San Bernardino where there are no shops. Like, what good does that do? Uh, I have an understanding myself of the difference between awareness marketing and other types of marketing. So I just want to get your thoughts on that just so that people understand the value of why just simply getting eyeballs on something is in fact so important. No, you're exactly right. And I mean, like, like I said back, you know, with the traditional marketing, it was all about the impression. It was all about getting the eyeballs. And then, you know, your brand team or whoever the case was that was monitoring the metrics would basically just find these trends and correlations in the data. If you got more impressions in a certain region and more sales for an item in a certain region, that's a trend. That's a correlation, right? Now, with all of the platforms, all the self-service platforms that we have, we can actually get nitty gritty with it. We don't have to go for impressions. We can actually go for action. We can go for purchases. We can go for add to carts. We can go for all that stuff that, you know, in traditional sense, we can never really monitor. We can never really optimize for. We couldn't, you know, we could do the best we, well, with what we had, but now we have these platforms that are so much more advanced with algorithms and tracking that we can essentially create a customer journey and know exactly what happens at each stage. So it's super, super fun stuff now. Oh, yeah. Uh, does, your, does the work you do focus on physical products? Can it also focus on digital info marketing products? We have both types in our audience. I just want to make sure we know who this is for. Sure. And uh, so my what I do for Shopanova is actually geared towards lead generation, info marketing, stuff like that. Because yeah. 
we as a company, I've got to generate leads. I've got to generate people that are interested in Shopanova. And, you know, we have a full-blown sales process with audits and all that good stuff. So that's the information side of things. And what we do for our clients, though, is geared towards those physical e-commerce products. But what I found is that the, the concepts are very much the same. You just have to know the applications. Right. So I guess a good place to start is on, if you could give us the structure, I guess, or the skeleton, however you're able to present this, on how somebody could take an e-commerce site that's doing, say, $10,000 a month, which for some is a respectable income, and for others is barely even worth getting out of bed in the morning, how we can scale that from, say, $10,000 a month to a million a month and scale to five, six, and seven figures. Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing, in order to make that a reality, the first thing that you have to do is make sure that your conversion rate is actually buttoned up correctly. And like you said, some of those people, you know, if 10K is what you're making in the first hour you're waking up, you might already have this buttoned up. But for somebody that's getting started and getting that level is just, you know, that might be their maximum level or it's something they're trying to hit. What they need to be focused on is making sure that their conversion on their site is buttoned up. Because what happens is if you don't have that conversion rate buttoned up specifically, and you don't know for a fact that every single person that goes to your site you know, you don't know that certain percentage that goes to the cart. You don't know that certain percentage that checks out and purchases and all that. If you don't know those metrics, then what you're basically going to be doing when you scale is dumping gasoline on a fire that you can't control. And you might just be I've burning money. In- <laughs> <laughs> so I know, what you're, I know what you're talking about. I, I grew up in the country. Man, I'll tell you, there's nothing like a good bonfire. Oh, then there's there, nothing and, like it, man. Except whenever there's money being thrown on it, right? I, I exactly. I remember. <laughs> I remember this one time that uh, I didn't realize how high the flames would climb just by having uh, stacked a bunch of empty cardboard boxes and flicked a little kerosene on it. And I thought that uh, even though the branches on that pine tree that were nearby were forty feet up, that there's no way the flames could reach it. Oh, those were fun times. Oh yeah, for sure, man. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, yeah that's so the I, first step for sure. And then um, from that point, it's really about, um, if, if we know that our conversion rate is good to go, it's really about finding our, um, what we like to call the hook. And that's kind of, you know, that item or maybe the group of items, otherwise known as a collection, that is like, it gets people's attention and is usually kind of their hero products the ones that sell out the fastest, the ones that have the most sales. And those are really what we use to capture those broad targeted um, audiences on social. Because when you target broad, we're essentially opening up that funnel really wide. But we are, I mean, we're still targeting. So we know that like this general group of people is who we want to go after. But whenever we give them that best item that we have or that best collection that we have, we really do find out how many of those audience are our actual customers. Yeah. And so the first step is really determining what those hero items are, what that hero collection looks like and making some just fire creative for those things. And I'm not something, I'm not talking like something that you just take with a selfie video with your 
phone camera. I'm talking about going out and finding some highly produced creative because in this day and age, there's so much media that is being ingested. There's so much content being ingested by the average user on a second basis, not even, not an hourly or a daily basis, but per second. And so you've got to have creative that stands out. And that's really the third step is making that creative. From that point, we're basically taking them through the through a customer journey. Um, at the second level, you know, we have these retargeting levels where we can essentially go after somebody, you know, a second or a third time after they've seen an ad or after they've gone to our site and looked around, done some browsing, done some shopping. And on that second level is where we really have to drive like what makes your item different from your competitors. Because at this point, you know that somebody is shopping, which means that they're also looking at other items. You got to think about it like a shopping mall. If you go looking for a pair of shoes at a shopping mall, there might be five different stores that carry shoes in that shopping mall. And if they see one pair that they like, you know, they might buy it right then, or they might just go look around at the other four stores. You got to yeah. make sure that your item, your price, all that good stuff is unique. And you have to communicate that in your advertising at those retarget levels. And then the final stage is where we bring somebody back that's done just enough action to get them, you know, maybe they've gone and looked at an item and they might've even added to their cart, but then they might've changed their mind or whatever the case may be. Like I said, they might've had that, you know, kind of effect where they're like, maybe I need to go look around, look at some pricing, stuff like that. Those types of people we can directly retarget and get them back to the store with a more intent based offer. And this might be a, this might be a promotional offer. This might be free shipping. This might be, you know, a, uh, an upsell, like, you know, get this t-shirt, but also get this pair of pants and get this, get these shoes that go along with that outfit. You know, this is where we're really trying to drive up that cart size. Uh -huh. And I mean, that's really like, once we can drive that cart size up and once you might've gotten somebody that was interested in a shirt, but by the time that you've retargeted them two or three times, they might be interested in the whole outfit and you might have a $250 cart versus a $60 cart. Right. You know, it's funny how that works. And it also depends on uh, all kinds of demographics. Uh, for example, and I've, and maybe you've seen different data, but I can tell you some data that I've looked at. If we're going to speak about clothing, for example, um, I can speak for myself as a man. And I know that other men that I've spoken with, as a general rule, with some exceptions, tend to feel the same way. When they go clothes shopping, if they know they need a belt, they want to know the same place they got the pants, they can get a belt that goes with the pants and probably like five other pairs of their pants as well. Also, I have a capsule wardrobe, so I like to know that I could potentially uh, fill or refill the entire capsule all in one place. So that type of retargeting that says, hey, you can get this all done in one place. You got timeless styles that'll last twice as long as the average length of the life cycle of clothing. Hey, yeah. you, you got like 500 bucks with me right there. So I don't have to think about it for two years. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, once you can do that, this is where the scaling comes into place. Because once you can do that, you can not only take apart that customer journey and find out, you know, where people are spending the most money at which stage uh, where the best conversion is and take apart those high level metrics and put money 
you know, in the exact right places that you want it to be, which is where we start, you know, adding, we're basically putting money where it's most effective at that point. And if you can do that and at the same time, keep those customers that you have gotten and make them buy over and over and over again, that's where the scale really comes in because you're driving lifetime value up. Getting the acquisition is great, but driving the lifetime value, that's, that's where the real money is to be made. I have a few questions about this retargeting and some of this is going to seem almost captain obvious, which you have to remember as I speak for my audience here and some of our listeners are somewhat advanced and some of them uh, like to have a good laugh at things and then look for better answers. Just recently, I booked a stay at a hotel room online. I had to travel somewhere for one night and I went to the hotel's website. I registered my room online and as soon as I finished that registration, I began getting targeted by ads on Facebook urging me to reserve a room at that hotel. Yep, that's a, that's that's exactly how it uh, basically what you, what why, you've why done would they is why would they target why would they target me to reserve a room at a hotel that I just reserved the room at? Well, what you've essentially done is you've entered a funnel and you have to you have to remember that funnel shape. At the top it's wide, at the bottom it's small, right? Yeah. And essentially you are spiraling down as a user. And that's all that the that the system sees is you spiraling down all the way to the bottom. And then essentially somewhere along the way you just stop spiraling. And so what has happened is the system has recognized this and they've put you into this bucket of users that have essentially stopped that spiral. And they're just going to keep hammering you with stuff over and over again until you take that action. If they're good at their job, that is. <laughs> if they're good at their job. But here's, I mean, to be clear, the question I'm asking is, why are they telling me to take an action I just took? Isn't there something else they could be targeting me with? Well, you have to remember that people change their minds all the time, right? Uh-huh. And so if you get retargeted over and over again with the same action, at some point, when you're actually thinking about it, when you're actually like, okay, hey, you know, I've looked around at, you know, other rooms or whatever the case may be, where that traditional marketing concept comes in is that top of mind influence. Okay. Because when, no matter if you took the action or if you didn't take the action, we still want to be on the top of your mind when you do decide to take action. Yeah, but I've already taken it. I already made the decision. If you've already made the decision, then, and you're getting, and you're continually getting retargeted, if you book that hotel, then essentially what they're doing is they're making sure that their name is the only name you know as a hotel. Aha. Uh-huh. So in this case, it was a Sheridan. So what they're doing is even though they know through their metrics and through their retargeting codes and what have you, that I have already confirmed that reservation. I have an email in my inbox and I saw their confirmation page on their website says, here is your confirmation number. We will see you tomorrow night. Thank you for choosing Sheridan. They're going to keep hitting me with book at Sheridan, book at Sheridan, because next time I have to book a room somewhere else, they want me to be thinking about Sheridan and not Marriott. Absolutely. And, and you have no idea when that person is going to tell their friend about Sheridan, 
or when that person is going to share that ad or comment on that ad and leave a review. So it's like, even though you completed that action, I still want to keep hitting you as an existing customer over and over and over again, because I want you to not only be a customer, but a, but a brand ambassador at that point. Uh-huh. Right. So it's if we want to equate this to, say, email marketing, it's the reason why you should email your list frequently, even if not every subscriber opens every email. Uh, a couple of years ago, I remember there was a very common rule of thumb that I used to share that if you have your average subscriber opening one out of 10, opening one out of 10 of every email you sent, then what the other nine is doing is reminding people of their name, of your name. And the 10th one is the one that gives you metrics on what subject line piqued their interest the most. Yes. That can tell you, that can tell you a lot of things. If it was more of an awareness email, uh, maybe they didn't open it because they already feel they're aware. They already know who you are. If it was more of a buy now type email with that type of subject line, that tell that can tell them that you may be either at or close to a buying decision. Yep, absolutely. Email marketing is essentially the same concept as any as as social paid advertising or any other funnel. It's it's all about creating that action at different stages of that customer's journey. And when you know. When you, when you can put yourself in the customer's shoes, you know exactly how, how to influence them. And like you said, you know, you might write 10 emails, you might write 20 emails, no matter what, you have to know at what stage that person is in. And so you need to know which bucket they're in and all that stuff. At the same time, they're not going to stop getting emails just because they completed an action. At that point, it's all about making sure that they know that you are the company that they've chosen over and over and over again. Right. So this is actually all the more reason to keep emailing somebody, especially after they purchase from you, whether it's to make offers about other thing or may, other things, or maybe you move them to the priority segment of your email newsletter list where you send them two a week instead of one a week, something along those lines, because they are at a higher level of interest. Absolutely. And uh, as for e-commerce, the best thing to do, especially with a a list that has already bought something from you, is anytime something new comes out or if anything goes on sale, any type of promotional offer, that is the very first list you should hit up with that offer every single time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, now now I get it because I've been wondering for years... This is the first time it's happened. Why would a hotel that I just confirmed a registration at target me with ads asking me to register for a room at one of their hotels? Wouldn't they be offering me something else was my question. It could be offering you something else, but also you never know, especially in the hotel industry, you never know when a person or how often a person travels. Yeah. So you might be a Sheridan uh, you might have booked a Sheridan at New York City, but you might be a business person that's going directly to Miami in two days. And so what they want you to do is they want you to book with Sheridan whenever you go to Miami or whenever you go back home or whenever you go to another city, you know, the next week or the next month or even the next quarter, they want you to book with Sheridan every single time. Right. 
The reason I booked to this particular Sheridan is I have an event to attend. It's a one-day event. Uh, it's within driving distance of my home, but not stay-at-home distance. So I booked the room for one night, and I chose it because uh, another person I knew who was going there said, it's only a mile down the road. Right. And I've been right. to Sheridan before. It's a it's fine. I mean, I'm not, I mean, I'm going to be in a room to sleep and then I'm driving the next morning very early. It's not like I, uh, not like I needed to be a five-star Ritz-Carlton experience. I just needed to be clean and safe. Sure. And uh, uh, you have to note that a lot of that safety mentality that you just mentioned comes from what we in the marketing industry call two things, influence and social proof. Uh-huh. Somebody else told you that this hotel is where you need to stay, or at least it's a decent hotel that you can stay at right. within a short, within a short period of time. It's safe. It's right next to, you know what I mean? Like somebody else told you that. And it was like, sure, that's exactly what I need. Right. Yeah. That is exactly what we look for in social proof on our advertising and also driving those reviews. Because one of the first things somebody will do, especially in this modern way of shopping the reviews really make all the difference. Okay. Um, you, you could get on an ad and there, if, if you see a hundred comments on that ad, the first thing somebody does a lot of times is goes and they click on that comment section and they start looking to see if people have a bad experience, a good experience, or to see if people are just in general talking about this in a good way or a bad way. Right. That's, this is a good segue because I did want to spend some time on reviews. I think reviews are absolutely critical. And I want to share my one of my thoughts on reviews, and then I want to get your thoughts on it. In my book, Groundhog Day is an event, not a business strategy, I explained that I selected a computer repair shop based on looking at their reviews on Yelp. Now, Yelp, as you know, is a, is a five-star scale. I wasn't looking for the computer shop that had 5.0 ratings. I was looking for the shop that had about 4.2, 4.3 and had a lot of reviews. Here are the reasons why I look for that combination. Number one, a lot of reviews means a lot of customers. So a lot of people are checking them out. And 4.2 out of five is a lot of satisfied customers, leaving a handful of people that didn't have such a great experience. So I want to look at those reviews and I want to see what were the problems? Is there a trend? Is there something I need to be aware of with this particular provider? That's number one. Number two, I want to see that this company is screwed up. If I see that they have 175 reviews and they're all five-star and they all say they rendered perfect service, I'm calling bullshit. There is just no way when you have a human rendered service, particularly when it comes to computer repair, that you're going to have 175 reviews and every single one of them is going to be a bullseye. That ain't happening. Uh, I want to see that they got the negative reviews, and I want to see what they did about it. Because if I see that they did something or made every good faith effort to rectify the situation, to turn that complaining customer into a fan by fixing the situation and delivering a really good job on the back end, I want to know that those are the hands I'm going to be in in case my case is one of the statistical few where something goes sideways. Those are my thoughts. Absolutely. Uh, and I'm, I mean, you kind of nailed it because it's like, you don't, you don't really trust the, the, the item that has four to five reviews on it, even if they're five stars Yeah. against that item that has a thousand reviews and the majority of them are good. 
because it, again, it's that influence effect. It's other people have done, other people have invested into this or other people have bought this or whatever the case may be. And so, you know, it has to be, there has to be something to it. If there's that many people that are putting their money in that place. Right. You know what I mean? That right there, that right there is a level that I rarely see discussed. And for me and you, it may be surface level, but for a lot of folks, they look at that and they say, okay, well, this shop has a 4.3 out of five, and this one has a five out of five. Why wouldn't I use the five out of five? Well, five out of five only has seven reviews, but 4.2 out of five has 180 reviews. I'm wondering why does that five-star shop only have seven reviews? Do they not have many customers or do they have people that are just so dissatisfied that they won't even talk about it? Or has it gotten to the point where their reputation is actually so bad that nobody goes there? Yep. Whereas with 180 reviews, 4.2 out of five, maybe 10 negatives, that tells me a lot about a high volume shop that does a lot of business and deals a lot of scenarios. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's like you said, I mean, you know, with volume, you're always going to get some, what I, what I really hate is whenever somebody will just try and avoid the negative reviews, like constantly. And it's one of those things, it's kind of like you said, there's power in negative reviews to not only answer them and, you know, kind of show what you're doing about it, but also to get your product better. If it's, if like listening to your customer base is super important when you're scaling, because if you're seeing bad reviews, that, that means something you have to take those seriously and you have to actually apply what you're learning in these negative reviews to your business moving forward. Right. You know, uh, speaking of uh, this, and this is something we see sometimes in businesses is I about six years now, it wasn't six years ago. I think it was about three years ago. I went to a restaurant for a, uh, for an event and the service there was um, that I received was almost like a parody. It was so bad. I thought I was on an episode of What Would You Do? And I was waiting for John Quinones to come from around the corner. That's how comically bad this was. Um, I attempted to get satisfaction there and was basically told to shut up and deal with it. So what do you think <laughs> I did? I, uh, I went to Yelp and I shared my thoughts. Well, uh, this, uh, this company uh, decided that the way to deal with that was to research me, find out, that friends of mine hosted events at their restaurant and go to my friends and say, Hey, your buddy left a review and we don't like it. And if you don't get him to take this down, you won't be allowed to host your events at our restaurant anymore. So for the sake of what they were doing to my friends, I took the review down, but I will bash Tommy Bahama restaurants every chance I get. All they had to do was reply to that review and say, we're sorry you had that experience please come back and let us show you a five-star experience. You know what the best part is? I would have. And that's, uh, I'll be honest with you. One of the best ways to do that is on social because when you get negative comments on your ads, I see a lot of people that try to like delete or hide those comments. Well, that's what they were doing. They're they're using bullying and intimidation to get rid of a negative review that they probably could have persuaded me to take down by just inviting me back. Uh, 
did you hear what I just said? I said, all they had to say was, sorry, you had that experience. Can you please come back and let us show you a five-star experience? Did you hear me mention that I was looking for him to give me a coupon? Exactly. I mean, no, I didn't ask for, I wasn't even asked for a discount. Uh, it didn't, it it didn't occur to me in my wish list of how I, the response I would have gotten off that. Uh, just the fact that they cared enough to say, look, this ain't us, man, come back. Let's show you how it really works. Yep. And they probably probably could have the manager come to me while I was there the second time and say, all right, was this more five-star for you? Yeah. Okay. Would you, would you mind either taking that other review down or posting an updated review that shows five stars so that, uh, so that uh, people can see that we'd really care about you. And I'm, I would have done it. Absolutely. And then like, like you're saying, all it took was a little bit of work. Yeah. Just a little bit. That wasn't even work. That was a copy pasted phrase. Yep. And I see, and I see, and I see restaurants do this all the time. Sorry, you had a negative experience. Can you please come back and let us show you a five-star experience? Yep, exactly. And again, like if you can do that, especially on social, other people see it. And so by showing that you're having a conversation with that customer and not avoiding it and trying to make it right, the other people that see that situation, you know, they respect it and they're more likely to pull the trigger on that business as well. Yeah. And, 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 and here's, the other, here's the other thing, too. When you have a dissatisfied customer, that is a golden opportunity to create one of your most raving fans. The fact that they're complaining shows that they care about the relationship. If they go radio silent on you, that's when you lost them. When they're complaining is when you have the opportunity to become their hero. They're asking you to save them from whatever the situation is. Uh, now, you may just get a troll or you may get somebody who just constantly complains because they're trying to get free stuff. And there's a way to shut them down, too, in a way that gains everybody's respect. Uh, one example that I've seen people do is to uh, say, look, uh, we've made every reasonable effort to contact this customer. We've, uh, we've telephoned them at the number we have on file. We've emailed them. We've invited them to come back. We've offered them a free meal. And they... Uh, and they have so far been unreceptive to this. We're making every effort to make this work. Uh, however, we can, we can only hear the complaint so many times. There's some, something to that effect. And what that does, that shows, that shows the other people on the thread that, hey, you know how to handle a troll. Yep, absolutely. You nailed it. Yeah. And I think it's an important conversation when it comes to e-commerce because is it a fact is it, or at least a trend, that people tend to mostly leave reviews when they're either ecstatically blown away by the service or so horrified by how bad it was? But somebody who had a neutral to okay to eh is probably more likely to just walk away from it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one thing that you have to remember is in e-commerce, one of the biggest dilemmas that a lot of store owners have is with shipping. When Amazon came out with that two-day shipping, it changed the game. And now it's almost non-existent because shipping industry is just getting hit left and right with all of these online purchases. Yeah. If you, if you as a business owner, an e-commerce business owner can somehow build a really good shipping offer into your pricing or 
whatever that looks like, I highly encourage you to do so because the most of the time, like if somebody gets their items, let's say two days, three days after purchasing and they didn't have to pay extra for it, it doesn't matter what the price of the item is. They're going to come back and they're going to do it over and over again because it was such a good experience. Yeah. I, this takes me back to my early days of being involved in online marketing and uh, dealing with some e-commerce stores like online shopping carts and such. And this is when people were selling $14.97 DVDs of their intro-level record, uh, entry-level um, info products. So yeah. they would set up these automated shipping tables and it would show that uh, to get the $14.97 DVD product, in two days, they would have to pay $84. <laughs> and I'm thinking, this is absolutely freaking stupid. And with all my clients who were dealing with that, we ended up just coming up with flat rate shipping. Uh, my recommendation to that customer was, uh, you know, for the value you articulate in your ad in this, you could probably just boost it to $29.97 all in and just say free shipping. And you, would come out, and, you would, and you would come out way ahead on your production costs. And that's what they did. And they found that their they found that their sales per volume of that actually went up simply because the customer didn't have to think about it. It's twenty nine ninety seven all in. Click the button; it's on its way. It was exactly that's and that's and, exactly and 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 it, and, it, and it didn't even become a customer service issue. And we tracked this as well. It didn't even become a customer service issue unless an entire week had gone by and they hadn't gotten their DVD yet. Up until that, they were pretty flexible and patient. Yep, I've I've dealt with so many on uh online store businesses that once they've wrapped their head around the fact that they're not even if they even if they quote unquote lose money on shipping on the front end whenever they actually drill down their numbers and they take apart the lifetime value of that customer they have actually made way more money than they would have made by charging that $20 shipping charge to get that item They've, yeah. they've gotten a customer that's so happy with the experience that they're purchasing over and over and over again. And I can't tell you how many times that building that free shipping and fast shipping at the same time into that price has, even if you have to eat it a little bit on your margins. Once in a has, while, once in a while, not always. Sometimes you make out. Yeah, absolutely. Because in some cases they were shipping that, that, yeah, that twenty nine ninety seven uh, DVD where they doubled the price of it, made it all in with free shipping. Uh, their their production and fulfillment cost was about seven dollars, and in some cases they were getting those things mailed out for eighty nine cents. Right, because they because right. they discovered within a certain geographic range, just just use United States Post Office and put a couple stamps on it. Exactly, didn't matter the end user as long as they got it in timely fashion. Exactly, and I mean it's it's. Uh, again, it's one of those things where small-minded business owners will take a look at that margin and they'll say, "I can't do that." But those one, those those really savvy business-minded people will take a look at that margin and take a look at the offer and how powerful that offer is, and they'll eat that margin hundred percent right. because they know what's going to happen. I have clients who sell their books, even though their books are listed on Amazon because they use Amazon as a fulfillment engine, they sell their books through their website. And this is where you see the offer 
the book is free. Just pay $7.95 shipping and handling. You know that offer. And they've told me the same thing. In some cases, they can get that book out the door for like a dollar. Uh, so they make out on those. In some cases, they're paying $34 to get that book to the end customer. But what do they have? Because they sold that book through their website. They have the customer's name. They got their email address. They got their physical address. And they got their phone number. What can you do with those four pieces of information? So, I mean, that, that, is... that that's halfway a rhetorical question, but I want to see if there's any wowser elements that we're missing here. Name, email address, physical address, and phone number. That's power. Oh, that's that's so data right now is actually I did I, I just read a study about this, but data right now in this modern way of marketing and buying is actually more valuable than gold. People are willing to pay more money for data than they are for gold right now. Wow. And, and you mean this literally, like the price of data is worth more than the price of gold. Right. Exactly. Wow. Like what I'm saying is if somebody stuck a bar of gold in front of you and they stuck a, an email list of a hundred thousand people in front of you, what I what no. I'm not even shitting you on this. Like there was a study done that business owners were choosing the hundred thousand person email list over the bar of gold. I follow the logic. Well, I mean, it's, it's one of those things because that, that hundred thousand person email list can be used to generate multiple bars of gold. Yeah. Right. So it's like, if you're savvy enough, then you know exactly what you're looking at in that data. You know exactly how powerful that data is. I mean, could you imagine what you could do with, let's say, Elon Musk's database of users or Amazon's database uh-huh. or any of those? Like, do you know how valuable that customer data is? It's incredibly valuable. This reminds me of a story. This happened maybe about 100 years ago or so. There was an up-and-coming, aspiring business person who went to Wall Street, and through some mechanism, he managed to meet John D. Rockefeller. And his goal in meeting Rockefeller was to get Rockefeller to either give him a loan or to be a seed investor for his business. And old John D. Rockefeller reached in his pocket, uh, jiggled around that uh, handful of dimes that he kept. He said, son, I'm not going to be loaning you any money today, and I'm not going to be investing in your business, but come with me. And he took this young man across the street to the stock exchange and introduced him to all the players. That was more valuable to that up-and-comer because they, he got introductions to every single player on Wall Street from John D. Rockefeller. That was worth more than any of Rockefeller's money. Absolutely, because it's scalable. Yeah, Absolutely. That's what I'm saying. Like data, relationships, networking, all that stuff. It's all scalable. And there's social social proof. John D. Rockefeller walked them up to the person with his hand on the guy's shoulder and said, meet my meet my friend here. Uh, Meet my friend, Nathan. Do you think they're going do you think they're going to count Nathan as a safe bet because John D. Rockefeller introduced them to him? Oh, it's it's the ultimate seal of approval. Right. Absolutely. Right. So uh, 
what else do we need to know about lifetime value of customer? Because LVC is one of those things that's thrown around all the time. And uh, what do we still need to cover in terms of what e-commerce stores and networks can do to increase that lifetime value of customers? Because I would love the idea of having a million junkies who buy everything I put out there. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Um, it's one of those things where I, uh, I was actually talking to somebody last week and it's like, when you think about it in terms of lifetime value, I mean, there's a reason why, um, like big, big, you, you know, you watch Netflix and, and all these documentaries on right. all these drug Lords uh-huh. and these guys that were in the cocaine game back in the day and how they were, you know, stashing cash in their walls and billions and billions of dollars of cash that were being buried out in the backyard and stuff like that. Yeah. Like it's because they had a product that the user base was purchasing that over and over and over again without stopping ever. They yeah. knew that. And that was, that was so scalable. That's, that's the power of that lifetime value. If you can create it whenever you have a product that, and, and again, this, all, this goes all the way back to product development. Whenever you're actually developing a product and you're launching one, don't do that cheap. Don't, don't go into business, you know, trying to find the cheapest thing possible to flip. Es- essentially just, you know, going and getting some cheap merch overseas that's, you know, barely put together and trying to flip that for some margin. It's a short-lived business model. It just is. Yeah. Um, put some effort into that product development because, again, like you mentioned at the very beginning of this, there's so many competitors now that you have to differentiate your product from the rest of them. And you have to be able to show that. So, you know, that's something that whenever we talk about increasing lifetime value, it really is all about the product at that point. It's all about the experience and it's about getting people to come back over and over and over. One thing that I burned through a lot of Nathan is uh, adapters that convert an A USB to a C USB. Because different computers I go through have different numbers of A ports and different numbers of C ports. Uh, Some have all A's and no C's. Some have all C's and no A's. Some have a weird number of C's and a weird number of A's. So to get all my equipment plugged in the way I need to, I end up with different combinations. I do searches for this stuff. I see six different brands of A to C adapters for USBs. And I can tell they're the exact same thing coming from the exact same supplier. Exactly. Exactly. Six, six different companies selling it at six different price points. Yep. That's the drop shipping model right there, man. Yeah. <laughs> you get some, you get some cheap supplier overseas to make you some models of, you know, there are actually, there are actually databases out there that show people what the top ranking items are on Amazon, Walmart.com yep. and stuff like that. And they will, no kidding, just go out and buy 100,000 of those units from some supplier overseas and try to flip that thing online in the marketplaces. And the way that they con- the way that they compete is with price. They will take that item and, you know, this brain is $9.99. They will put theirs at $9.98. Just one cent difference because the algorithms pick it up and they pick up the price and they'll start throwing that in the search rankings. And they'll start climbing the search rankings because they're cheaper than the other models. Best value. Yep. 
it's the same thing. It's literally the exact same adapter, but exact one penny same. difference is a excellent buy compared to nine ninety nine. So you know what I do? Instead of looking for that C drive or, or a connector that is $9.99, I look for the brand name that is $49.98. Okay. And the reason being is because if you if I see that item, if I see that price is so much higher than the other stuff, at, at the very least, I'm going to do my research and see if that's a much better item and if it's worth the four times, five times cost as the other item is. Yeah. And, and in my research, if I find out that that is the industry standard brand and item, I'm going to pick that over something that came in a pilot from China. Well, and when it comes to USB connections, particularly your A to C adaptions, that stuff matters. You get a really crappy one and you're going to have very poor transmission on your podcast mic or your headphones are only going to turn up half the way or your streaming is going to cut all the time. I have a, I have a, a C plug-in for my wired Ethernet that I put into my laptop and uh, I went through two of them to find one that worked well. Yeah, I mean, it's same wire, same wire coming from the same router, the same 5G connection that was tested 20 times and was shown to be running at absolute optimum speed. And I had to go through two adapters to find one that worked well, because one was really bad and one was really good. Yep. The best part is they were three dollars apart in price. Yep, exactly. And and again, that's where those reviews come in, right? Yeah, (laughs) because then you start looking and you're seeing people say, if you see a ton of reviews that say this thing lasted me a week and then it failed uh-huh. and you've seen that over and over and over again, well, it's time to start looking for a different product, right? Well, yeah. Yeah. And that, and that can also be relative as well. Uh, I go, I like uh, Logitech headsets to plug into my laptops. In fact, I'm using one right now. I've gone through a ton of them over the years. I, I expect to get six months out of them. So whenever they revise the design or, uh, they release it under a new model number or something like that. I check the more recent reviews to still see if I'm hearing that they last about six months or so, because I know it's a six month investment In half a year, I'm going to buy another one because if the plug doesn't wear out, my cat's going to chew through the wire. Yeah, that's true. So I, 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 I don't even buy warranties with them because I know six months from now, I got another one. That, that's just fine. I want to make sure that I'm not replacing it after a week is my point. Yep. That's very true. That's very true. The last, the last headset I had, uh, I got two years out of. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Te- technically, it still kind of works. It's just that the wire that goes into the plug has just gotten frayed from it being bent so many times. That makes but sense. If I, but if I hold it a certain way, it still works. I still want to hold it. <laughs> yep, I got you, man. Yeah, so this is, a, you know, this is a lot of fun. And I know we've touched on a lot of surface level issues here but yeah what i think we've done for our listeners is given them a lot of things to think about in terms of how they develop their e-commerce strategy so as a final question and we've already started on the answer here so i wanted to see if we can develop it further is let's say somebody is looking for a product uh they themselves are not much into r&d or they don't have an r&d budget and they want to find something to sell in their e-commerce store we've covered looking at quality we've covered looking at databases to find all the uh, us two type variations. What other things should they keep in mind when looking for 
products to put on their e-commerce store that will really sell well and make it worth their time? Well, the, the one thing that we haven't touched on is the need to be aware of the audiences. They need yeah. to be aware of the customers. And so one of the things that can make or break a product is the audience. You never want to go after the everybody off audience. Right. The best products are the ones that are aimed at niche audiences. And so, I mean, you're talking about like, uh, let's take, for instance, pet items. You know, you got dog people, you got cat people, you got fish people, right? Yep. And the one thing about those pet owners is that when they care about those animals, they will do whatever they can to keep that animal alive, right? Oh, you don't, you don't have to tell me. My two princesses, uh, they're allowed to interrupt my live streams. They're allowed to interrupt these episodes. Uh, if they, if uh, Princess Alessandra jumped up on my keyboard right now and hit one of the keys and disconnected this, I would just <laughs> laugh benignly, get you back, and then would do post-production editing. There you go. So, you know, thinking in, in terms of that, that's a niche audience that will buy from you over and over and over again. Yeah. Because... They will do whatever they can or whatever they feel is best for that specific pet. That's just one example of a niche audience that converts over and over and over again. So I highly recommend looking at these niche audiences. And it's usually some, it's usually an audience that you yourself can relate to. Pretty much every online store owner that's been successful has created a product that has solved a problem in a niche that they can relate to. That's key right there that you can relate to exactly. because we can all come up with something and match a product to an audience and sell to it. But man, if I'm not into it, I don't think I'm going to do that good. Exactly. Exactly. So I'm going to think, I'm going to think, I don't like this product or you know, this audience just really isn't my cup of tea. And these aren't the people that I would hang out with if given a choice. So why do I have to do business with them? Is it really worth it? Oh, you uh, nailed it, man. I mean, yeah. that's what it's all about. Maybe, maybe in the short term, maybe if I, maybe if I had a flippers mindset where the idea would be is I build e-commerce businesses, even in the, even with brands and audiences, I'm not necessarily enthusiastic about with the idea that I'm going to sell a turnkey business. In that case, then my motivation is not the audience, but it's about me flipping that. But even exactly. so, that's short term because I'm a I'm a I'm a short I'm short term involved looking for a long term buyer. Yep. Not and that's I, necessarily bad because some people would love to buy a turnkey business. I'm just saying. If that's if that's what you're doing, again, the best ones to invest in are those niche audience products. Absolutely. Yeah. That's why I brought that's why I brought it up. It's still the same thing because people are more likely to buy a turnkey if it's a niche that they want to get involved in. Absolutely. Like if I Absolutely. like, let's say I want to sell um, American flags, uh, I would find a turnkey e-commerce store that already has a selection of flags in different shapes and sizes and uh, covers every single iteration with all the different star combinations over the evolution. The United States has all the revolutionary war flags, has all of the uh, department flags and everything else so that uh, I could immediately go to market with any type of flag associated with the United States of America already established. Yep, that'd be I'd be, I'd be I'd be less likely to uh, get involved with a store that's like flags of the world. Yep, that's right. Yeah. 
just a just simple way of differentiating that. So this has been a really great conversation. And, uh, you know, we're about to wrap up here near the top of the hour. I just wanted to, uh, you know, for anybody who is on the edge of their seat, they do want to get more involved in e-commerce. They want to work with a winner. Uh, how do they get a hold of you and what uh, they have to look forward to once they do? So the best way to get a hold of me personally, yeah, I will. I, I'm pretty available on email. Uh -huh. uh, my email address is Nathan at shopanova.com. Uh-huh. And if somebody's interested in working with Shopanova to uh, build their e-commerce store, then they need to go to shopanova.com, fill out an application. Um, it is worth noting that we don't take on everyone. We're pretty selective whenever it comes to who we work with. But it's one of those things where we always do our due diligence. We audit. We make sure that the store is ready to go, that we, we think we can actually help. Even if we can't help somebody, we explain exactly why we feel like we're not the best fit for them. And a lot of people appreciate that. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I really mean that. Nathan Otwell, it's been an honor and believe me in education. Absolutely, man. It's a pleasure. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.